Welcome to The Resonance, the podcast about energy and sustainability from Alpha Energy Group. So welcome to another sustainability-themed edition of The Resonance, an Alpha Energy Group podcast. I'm Samuel Clements, Sustainability Specialist at Alpha Energy Group, and today I'm joined by Jeremy Nicholson, our Corporate Affairs Officer. Jeremy, hello. Hello to you. Looking forward to discussing COP26 and everything related to it. Absolutely. Well, we have a Glasgow Climate Pact calling on nations to set new climate targets by the end of next year. So pretty good. And also the phasing down unabated fossil fuel usage and inefficient subsidies. So is there progress here? Is it a big letdown? Is it a success or is it a monumental failure, as some Pacific delegates have said? What's your initial views on what you've seen and heard from this COP26 process? Well, I think it'd be unfair to call it a monumental failure. Perhaps some uh, predictable voices have said maybe they were always going to say that. Uh, On the other hand, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? There's some progress there, which we, you know, we should acknowledge. I think it leaves us in a better place than we were before. Some matters of detail yet to be cleared up um, on wording on various things and what they actually mean in practice. But overall, actually, I have a feeling, you know, you can always look at these things in two ways. Is the glass half full or the glass half empty? But in this case, I think it's rather more full than empty. And the likely effect on future emissions, which is what matters for climate change, I think has been broadly positive. I think we'll see them dropping faster than we might have expected uh, a year ago or certainly a few more years before that. Yeah, well, I think it's looking a bit better than Copenhagen, which many saw as an utter shambles and a letdown. And, and then we had Paris, which was seen as a real breakthrough. Time will tell before we see, you know, what, what fine words can actually be put into action here. A couple of interesting things I, I read about. One was the key thing of phasing out of coal being translated and, and changed to phasing down of coal, something that was obviously pushed by um, India. And that, that softening of the language on coal certainly disappointed quite a few people. But do you think it's realistic to expect that, bearing in mind how many of these developing nations rely on coal? Well, the short answer is no, this is always a transition that was going to take decades for uh, coal-dependent economies in particular. And you mentioned, you know, China and India as being obvious examples. And one might say some African nations as well in, in due course. Now, that said, of course, from a climate perspective, it would be more encouraging to hear words like phase out rather than phase down. And doubtless it'll keep, uh, you know, the difference between the two will keep an army of lawyers happy for a while. But let's face it, it's all about changing the trajectory for emissions uh, from coal burning which are you know sharply down in Europe uh, they're coming down in America they're coming down in some other parts of the world and to see other Asian countries sign up for a coal phase out in the long run I think that was a really encouraging move we're not there yet with China it's planning to peak its emissions by 2030 and that leaves an awful lot of room for growth but as I say the curve is starting to bend down for others and I think we should be reasonably optimistic about that So is there any kind of a reaction that you expect to see as a result of this agreement? Well, one particular area, I think because of the China and India standoff on coal and wind down or phase out of uh, or phase down of fossil fuels and subsidies, is that a likely strengthening of support in Europe and the UK and elsewhere with carbon controls for border tax adjustments or similar measures to address carbon leakage, you know, the movement of industry out of those countries to those with uh, more lax carbon controls. 
could you just expand on border tax adjustments and carbon leakage? Well, in, in, it's, it's the jargon, I'm afraid, of the trade, but a border tax adjustment is like a tariff, but it reflects the carbon content of goods that are being traded across national borders. So if you're purchasing materials or, or products manufactured in a high carbon economy, these tariffs would apply. If you're importing goods from a low carbon economy like the European Union or, or the UK or indeed uh, potentially America, those goods wouldn't attract the same tariffs. And it's designed to create a level playing field between manufacturers in uh, cleaner uh, economies and uh, more carbon intensive ones and that's what the, again the jargon carbon leakage means it's the it's the movement of industrial production away from cleaner economies to less clean ones where the cost of production are lower uh, because they haven't uh, started applying carbon controls and carbon taxes of the sort that we already have in this part of the world so I did read one comment that um, all these promises are going to ring pretty hollow if the fossil fuel industry is still receiving trillions and trillions of subsidies each year and, and we're still building coal plants. So I did see in the wording there, it talks about inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels will be whittled down. But what's, what's that really referring to that? Well, it's a very good question. Some, from an economic perspective, would say pretty much all of those subsidies are economically inefficient and we should probably do away with them, whether or not we were concerned about climate change. So at least there's a focus on it. At least it's mentioned in the communique, which you know a lot of fossil fuel producing nations were reluctant to see. So I, I do think that's progress of a sort. Of course, this is not so much an issue for the UK and Europe and countries like them, which have pretty much removed all fossil fuel subsidies and indeed are taxing the use of fossil fuels and regulating them pretty heavily now. It's more a question for big oil, gas and, uh, and coal producers internationally in the Middle East and elsewhere that have a very different way of operating and aren't exposing the, uh, the producers of those fuels to the full economic cost, let alone the full environmental cost of their activities. And that really does need to change uh, in the long run if we're going to solve this problem. Great, and there was also some positives on forests, um, deforestation, reforestation, um, a, bit, a big announcement between US and UK on methane and others. Also, clean technology um, support um, developing countries. But just to sort of push back a little on that point of the emissions, there's quite a lot of commentary out there that although there is progress, although we're making positive steps, when it comes to the hard science of climate change and hitting 1.5 degrees, we either take the emission reductions that we need to take or we don't and we miss it. And we've all heard about what potential world that would be if we do miss it. So when trying to hit 1.5 degrees, it's, it's been challenged that the subsidies that we still have for fossil fuels and especially coal or even having coal plants still in the pipeline just is not compatible with hitting 1.5 degrees. How do we balance the narratives from scientists versus what is mainly a media and political narrative from these COP events? How do we find the sort of practical way out of this? 
Well, I think the honest truth is we're very unlikely to reach the 1.5 degree trajectory. We're probably going to overshoot that a bit, but it seems like we're going to overshoot it by less than previously assumed, and that's partly down to things to do with other gases, including methane as well as CO2, which you mentioned, and indeed forestry and other means of sequestering carbon, uh, which are equally important. Does that mean that we should be sort of consumed by gloom and doom if it looks like we might be, say, heading for 1.8 instead of 1.5? Or maybe by the time we have this conversation in a year or two's time, maybe those two figures will come a little bit closer? I don't think so. There's a certain amount of um, warming or heating, depending on which way you want to describe it, already baked into the system that we're going to have to adapt to, whether we like it or not. And I think recognising that it's not a question of adapting to climate change or trying to prevent it. We're going to need an element of both. I think some sort of maturity about that discussion is probably a rather sensible thing. You know, whatever we do in developed Western economies, even under the most optimistic scenario for those uh, who are developing elsewhere, we're going to see emissions rise for a period of time yet, and they're not going to come down overnight. Absolutely. It, it is quite sobering seeing what the situation is and where we need to get to. I mean, there's still about 8,500, I believe it is, coal-fired power plants, plenty more in the pipeline. Um, and I read just the other day that if we were to try and hit 1.5 degrees, it would require the kind of emission cut that we had during the pandemic, so which was about 7% reduction in emissions that year. And we would need that year on year. So it's, it's certainly a challenge. A couple of other points that were deemed as success points in the COP26, one was uh, around um, really revisiting the nationally determined contributions. So this is the plans that each country has to have around emissions targets, around policies. And really, it looks like they're having to sort of ratchet up those targets next year in preparation for 2030s. This is one positive. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think it is reasonably positive. Obviously, not all of those uh, NDCs are equally ambitious, but the fact there's more transparency about them, the fact that they're going to be subject to this sort of potential uh, annual ratcheting up process or ratcheting down in terms of emissions, I think that is quite positive. We'll see how well it works in practice, but this is, in a sense, flows naturally from what was decided at Paris uh, in, in 2015, that it would be for countries themselves to determine what they can do, but what they would be, is held to account uh, for those plans and for delivering them. And that, of course, is the issue for, for the UK and European countries as well. We've, we've signed ourselves up to some pretty ambitious targets. And we have some of the policies there to deliver it, but not all. And some of them, when it comes to, you know, removing gas boilers from people's homes and indeed uh, removing older cars from the road and so on, that's going to be quite costly and, and disruptive for some in society. And handling that process and keeping the public opinion on board whilst we do so, I think is going to be a key challenge. Absolutely. But I'm glad there was recognition that it does need to have more ambition around those. I think the current trajectory from those NDCs is around 2.4 degrees of heating. So it's, it's good there'll be some progress made on those. Now, another note of disharmony was around climate finance of the 100 billion that was pledged in 2009 from rich countries, only about 75 billion has actually fed through. And most of that has been to help these countries cut emissions uh, and most of that through renewable energy projects and, and not going to the most 
developing or the poorest countries. So there was actually um, wording and commitment around doubling climate finance, where, which is obviously really, really important. And also around mitigation and adaption. There's some voices out there. That there wasn't enough on that, especially on the countries that are, are low lying, like the, the Pacific countries. But um, any thoughts on the climate finance side? Well, I think there are concerns about that, although, let's face it, things have moved forward a bit. You know, that finance that you talked about, the $100 billion per annum, you know, that was supposed to have been delivered some time ago. And what has been promised and hopefully will materialise next year or, or shortly afterwards, there's some question marks about how much of that is additional, <laughs> how much might be clawed back from other aid budgets and so on, and whether it's going on, in quotes, the right projects. I mean, any projects that reduce emissions globally have some benefit. But, of course, for those who are least able to afford their own uh, emissions reductions or, or to develop whilst avoiding increasing their emissions, it's important that some of those projects uh, benefit those countries. That's the whole purpose of the finance package. And I think that there are some open questions there about whether it goes far enough and whether the right controls are in place. But on the other hand, at least the money is starting to flow now or will do. And that, that's a big improvement on where we were. Of course, you know, politicians like the rest of us, uh, they like to make grandiose promises about saving the world, and who wouldn't? Uh, but when it comes to writing out a cheque, particularly a cheque with someone else's money, that's where it starts to get difficult. Exactly, and, and promises from politicians, you know, there's plenty of voices out there saying that we can't rely on um, a conference of parties or collections of world, world leaders and politicians to make the decisions we do need to avert disaster. You know, it sounds from our discussion, what we've seen, 1.5 degrees is barely alive, as one participant said. So this is really about trying to get as much action to limit warming as close to that as possible. Now, what role does business play if um, we can't rely on uh, sufficient government action? Well, in the first instance, um, obviously, the emissions that are directly under a business's control and indirectly through its supply chain, uh, those are both things that can be influenced um, by businesses, whether or not there's government support measures in place or a legal requirement to do so. And, and even when there isn't a legal requirement, there's quite often a, a financial or commercial requirement because, you know, clients and customers and uh, those financing businesses are increasingly requiring it. So I think, you know, smart businesses will recognise the political direction, the political weather, if you like, uh, even if the, the legislative um, situation may have to catch up with it a bit. And also, you know, there's a big role for innovation in the from the private sector here. What we really need, ultimately, are increasingly competitive low-carbon technologies, cheaper forms of, of of low carbon energy or other ways of managing things to reduce environmental impact that can sell themselves globally with or without policy support from governments. And I think that role for innovation and driving those costs down as we've started to do in the UK with offshore wind, as others have done with solar costs and batteries, and hopefully we might see in small modular nuclear reactors and all sorts of other technologies as well. We're going to need a raft of those. And for the private sector, there's a huge opportunity for those who can find competitive ways of getting emissions down. And when it comes to the private sector, there's always the uh, label of greenwashing which rears its head. But interestingly, I saw at this COP there was pledged for a UN-backed body to actually expose greenwashing and propose clear standards, a sort of framework, as it were, to really measure and analyse companies that set net zero commitments and are they actually setting credible commitments and are they actually implementing them? And that's, that's really key, that making sure that we do actually have credible action.
Well, I'd rather agree. And, you know, environmental activists have always been pointing out the importance of having transparency and avoiding greenwash for, for quite sensible reasons. But, of course, there comes a point where in business uh, there's a large enough minority, possibly a majority in certain sectors of, of businesses that really are taking serious action here and don't want to be tarred with the same brush as perhaps their competitors who may not be doing the right things or may be misrepresenting them. So having a transparent and auditable framework to ensure both businesses and countries are actually doing what they say and not misrepresenting things and you know, increasing cynicism in the general public, I think that's a hugely important thing. Yes, and I think just to sum up really from how I see it, it really does seem like there is some progress, but maybe not enough. I mean, it's clearly a stepping stone. It's clearly watered down. But I think there has to be some realism that, you know, consensus and compromise go together. There's many different actors here, many different countries, and clearly more urgent action is required. And if that isn't going to come from uh, governments and politicians, then perhaps it is the private sector and companies that need to lead the way. Yes, and, and I mean, in, in a sense, a bit of competition as to who is in the lead would probably be no bad thing. And it's easy to get um, depressed about this sometimes. You know, it's after all the 26th conference of the parties, which means there have been 25 previous meetings. And some of us can remember the, uh, you know, make or break meetings at Paris in 2015, Copenhagen in 2009, Kyoto in 97, and, and indeed the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. And you might feel this is all taking a long time, but it was always going to take a long time and the fact that this meeting is if as, as you say a stepping stone is not necessarily a bad thing you know journeys do consist of a, a series of steps and this is an important one and if this was an, a simple problem that could have been solved by one multilateral summit it would have been solved years ago so I think, you know, recognising we are, we are on a journey, we're still going to be on one for a while. But it does seem like we're beginning to start turning the corner, if not to 1.5, then at least below 2 degrees, which looked like where we were heading only a few years ago. Well, perhaps there is a little hope. And it's left just for me to say thank you very much for your time, Jeremy. Really good to speak to you today. If anyone would like to learn more about Alpha Energy Group's services or resources, please visit alphaenergygroup.com. And I look forward to being with you on the next edition of the Resonance Sustainability Edition. Mm -hmm.